Do you remember ever being stunned by beauty? That experience of being in the presence of something so breathtaking, so stunning, so majestic, is meant to communicate certain things to our, to our hungry souls. I, I can remember three distinct times in my life where I was just overcome by awe at the beauty I saw. I'm just going to put a couple uh, pictures up on the screen. One was when we lived in uh, Peru for a couple of years, and we had the opportunity before we left to visit Machu Picchu. And probably like many of you, you've seen pictures like this of Machu Picchu. Living in Peru for two years, I saw them almost every day. And it was one of those things where the picture never comes close to the actual experience. I remember taking the, the train ride from Cusco to the base of this mountain. We took the bus on the way up, and they led you out to this place where it just opens up in front of you. And I was just speechless, stunned by beauty. Another time came when the first time when we lived in Calgary of seeing Moraine Lake. A lot of people know about Banff National Park, and we'll go to see Lake Louise. Well, this lake is just not too far from the, the famous Lake Louise. And when I looked out at Lake Moraine for the first time and just took in the beauty of the green and the blue and the oranges and just the majesty of the mountains. I just remember sitting in that moment, being stunned by the beauty and not wanting it to end. There was one more occasion when my wife and I were privileged to take our 20th anniversary vacation to Kauai, the smallest of the islands in, in Hawaii, and to just absorb the beauty where just one look after another just left me with my mouth hanging open. It was almost in many ways too much to take in. Stunned by beauty. Uh, you probably notice a theme in these pictures. I, I love the mountains, as many of you do. And for me, there's just nothing like being around mountains to, to see the grandeur of, of the beauty of God's creation, but also to feel my, my place in it that I am really, in the grand scheme of things, very small, but yet I get the privilege of, of soaking in this beauty. And whenever I see mountains, I think about this one quote from C.S. Lewis's famous book that he wrote called Till We Have Faces. Many people know him by the Chronicles of Narnia. The, the, the favorite book that he himself said that he wrote was this book, Till We Have Faces. And in it, it's a story of, of two sisters, and one sister and her deep longing to go to the mountains. And at one place she said this, it was when I was happiest that I longed the most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. That quote resonates with me. Whenever I've been stunned by beauty, I've had the opportunity to bask in its glory, there is something in me that, that wants to not only get inside that, but for it to get inside me, to be sustained by that. I've shared this quote with you before by Wallace Stevenson, a poem called Sunday Morning. The character says, but in contentment, I still feel the need for an imperishable bliss. I think when we see beauty, when we're stunned by it, there's something that, that cries out within us, longing for an imperishable bliss, something, something that will never end, this deep experience that we're having to continue to grow more and more, to get further up and further into that experience. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the things that Jesus secures for us in having risen from the dead. 
and has everything to do with what I've been talking about so far. Now, in years past, we've talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what happened historically some 2,000 years ago that changed the world, that convinced even the deepest skeptics and hardened enemies of Jesus to believe the good news. And that is the resurrection itself. We've talked about James, the unbelieving brother of Jesus, who during the ministry and life of Jesus didn't think he was the Messiah. In fact, we're told in the Gospel of Mark, he actually thought his brother was crazy. That is, until he saw his brother crucified and risen from the dead. And Jesus appeared to James. And James became an ardent proclaimer of his gospel, declaring to people the good news that he's come back from the dead. He became the head of the the much persecuted church in Jerusalem. We talked about before how Thomas, the skeptical disciple of Jesus, who was not with the group of disciples when Jesus initially appeared to them, and they told him, we've seen the resurrected Christ. And he's like, I don't believe you. (laughs) People don't come back from the dead. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand in the side where he was wounded by that Roman spear. And Jesus, in his kindness and grace, appeared to Thomas and said, here, put your hand in my side. And Thomas fell before him and said, my Lord and my God. And of course, we've talked before about Paul, the zealous enemy of Jesus, the one who was persecuting Christians, putting them to death, and yet who encountered the resurrected Jesus himself and became his foremost ambassador to the Roman Empire. All of these men and women who were with them proclaimed the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. But let me ask you this question. That is indeed good news. But what is the one thing the resurrection of Jesus secures for us? If you were to tell someone that that Jesus rose from the dead, the historical evidence for that is beyond dispute. Everyone agrees that there was an execution that there was an empty womb, a tomb, rather, and eyewitnesses to that event. And they said, so what? What does that mean? What would you say? Now, if you were to say that one of the things that Jesus secures for us is freedom from the slavery of the fear of death, you would not be wrong. If you were to say that one of the things that Jesus secured for us is the forgiveness of sins, you would not be wrong. If you were to to say that one of the things that Jesus secures for us is adoption as children of God, you would not be wrong. And even if you were to say that one of the things that Jesus secured for us is entry into eternal life, you would not be wrong. But what are all those benefits and more designed for? What does it get us to? That, my friends is where all the beauty comes from. So we're going to call our study today, They Shall See God. And we're going to look at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation. And I want to look just in two passages very briefly, Revelation chapter 21, the very beginning, and the very beginning of Revelation chapter 22. But we're going to dial in on one verse. But this is how the Apostle John describes for us what he saw. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, wielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's so much in these verses that we could dive into. There's so many questions that come to our mind as we want to to soak in this and explore what it's saying to us. But the one phrase I want us to dial in on is this particular phrase, they shall see his face. If we were just cruising along the highway and these words popped up to us, I think we would slam on our brakes and go, wait a minute, what? The possibility of seeing the creator of all things face to face, that's what the scriptures hold out as the hope for those who believe? Absolutely. During the season leading up to Easter, we've been contemplating what does it mean to to have a pure heart? Because Jesus himself tells us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Jesus' mind, the prize, the reward, the hope that is laid before people like you and me is the hope of actually seeing God. Now, as we think about this passage from the book of Revelation and this hope of seeing him face to face, we need to be reminded of the story of the gospel. It opens up with God dwelling with humanity. God created our first primal parents and placed them in this garden paradise. And there he dwelled with them. He would walk with them in the cool of the day. This was the sanctuary for God. And from there, he called humanity to go and to spread his kingdom over the face of this world. But as the story goes, humanity fell. They all turned their backs upon God, wanting to to call right, right according to their own eyes and wrong, wrong according to their own desires and dictates. And so they were banished from the presence of God. God's space heaven and human space earth were meant to be one, but now they've been separated. And of course, God sent his son Jesus, this beautiful person who did everything well, who lived the perfect life, who loved God and loved people like you and me perfectly well. Everything he said was spot on. Everything he did was beautiful. And Jesus, as a result of a conspiracy between the religious leaders and the Roman authorities, put him to death. But it was in that moment, that conspiracy where they nailed him to the cross, that God was at work behind the scenes, 
piling up the sins of fallen humanity upon the broad shoulders of Jesus, where he bore condemnation in his flesh and rose three days later. And of course, the end of the story, which we just read, what Jesus himself called the restoration or the renewal of all things, comes when God's space and human space once again overlaps. The story at the end of the scriptures is not us going up to heaven, but of heaven, God's throne coming down to earth, and God dwelling with his people, and we with him. That's the broad story of scripture. There's a fellow named Jonathan Edwards. He was a New England minister, and really one of the most brilliant minds that America has produced. And in 1755, he wrote this incredible dissertation called A Dissertation on the End for which God created the world. <laughs> that's a big scope, isn't it? This is the reason why God created the world. That's, that's the goal that he set out to do, and it's, it's part dense philosophy, and it's part biblical theology. But together, this is what he says in here. He said, God made the world that he might communicate, and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. What's he saying there? He says the reason why God created this world in the first place was to communicate the glory of himself to his creation. And we were meant to be able to receive that, to bask in it for our minds and our hearts to, to receive it, to be animated and enlivened by it. That's the reason why, he says, God created the world. John Calvin, the reformer, described creation as a theater of God's glory. A place to display the beauty and the brilliance of all that he is. That's what we were meant to naturally intuit. The Psalm, Psalm 19 says, The heavens itself declares the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Here the psalmist contemplates looking at the beautiful night sky. And he says it's speaking volumes about God and all his glory. And the question is, do we have the receptacle to be able to see that? See, Jonathan Edwards makes the point that, that God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. In other words, God made this world to be a display of his glory through which we can be overwhelmed by beauty but part of that glory is meant to be experienced by people like you and me. And as the scriptures tell us, humanity went off the rails. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Our hearts were meant to respond to the glory of God that is ablaze in all this world. And instead, what we do is we focus on the world. We don't trace the beauty of the world back to its original design to the creator. So we can stand before, like I did, those mountains and just go, this is beautiful. And not stop to contemplate the artistry of the artist behind it. There's this fascinating place in the story of the scriptures where God, in, in his pro process of, of redeeming a people for himself through which the Messiah Jesus would come, liberated them from slavery in Egypt, and he called Moses to lead them into the promised land. And there's this interesting place where God is speaking with Moses, and Moses says to him, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What a beautiful prayer, Moses. God, let me see your glory. And God says, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face because no one can see my face and live. Why is that? If we were meant to see that glory, if humanity at one time was created to live in the presence of God, beholding his glory, why can we not do it now? Why is this something that that even Moses, the leader of God's people, could not do? Simply, my friends, because we would be overcome and annihilated by what we would see. Our hearts, this side of glory, are not purified. We, we cannot take in what we would see. And what's worse is we can't do anything about that. As the Proverbs teach us, who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. We cannot unstain ourselves. We cannot de-sin ourselves. And so the, the, the vision of God and all his beauty and his glory would simply undo us. In fact, there's this one place in the scriptures where Isaiah the prophet is given a vision of God and his glory in heaven. And his response was, I am undone. Literally, I'm disintegrating. So what God has done is he has taken that impurity of our hearts. And he placed that upon Jesus. What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus does for us. And so that's why the scriptures tell us, as we saw earlier in our service, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Do you see what the Apostle Peter says here? That he might bring us to God. Can we get our our minds around that? That Jesus, the righteous one, the pure one, the clean one, would lay down his life for people like us who are unrighteous, impure, unclean, so that our sins can be dealt with and he can usher us into the presence of God. This is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to make the way so that you and I can see where all the beauty came from, that we might be able to gaze upon the Holy One. The Apostle John, in writing to some Christians, is glorying in this very truth. And he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But when he appears, we shall see him. I'm sorry, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. My friends, does that thought grab hold of your soul? That we might be able to see the creator as he is, unfiltered, unhindered by our own sinfulness, having the spirit of God animate us so we're not disintegrated in the presence of beauty and glory. The apostle Paul concurred with what John would say. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says, I I understand 
this mystery that's held before us, that we will see God face to face. And I can kind of, in one sense, imagine imagining that. But I only see dimly. But one day we will. And we'll be fully known. So that phrase, they shall see his face. I hope will anchor us. That this would be something that drives you every day of your life. The hope of seeing the creator, the one who gave you life and breath, who even right now is sustaining the molecules in your body. That you would see him face to face. Theologians call this the beatific vision. It's from this Latin word that simply means the happy making sight. (laughs) I love that phrase, the happy making sight. The vision of God is, is meant to thrill us at the depths of our soul. It is meant to be what we've longed for all along. To see the place where all the beauty comes from. If you were to look in a thesaurus and look up words that are similar to that word beatific, you would find things like this. Delightful. Blissful. Joyful. Euphoric. Rapturous. I was telling some friends right before the service, and talking about what we want to talk about today, the words are inadequate. They, they fail to get behind the truth and to paint a picture for us what it will be like to see God. But it will be full of delight. It will be full of joy, full of bliss, euphoric, rapturous, and it never ends. My friends, even if we were able to see it right now, we would not be able to stand it because God in his infinite glory shining upon us, we wouldn't be able to sustain the beauty of that moment. Just like when I walk out and saw the beauty of those mountains, my mouth hung open and I wasn't able to say anything. God's glory is so much more infinite and powerful than that. And yet, that day when we'll see him face to face, God's spirit himself will sustain us. So this joy of seeing God face to face will never end. It will never decrease. It will never diminish. It will never get old. One moment of glory will break fresh upon another moment of glory, even more glorious than the one we just experienced. Friends, we will see him face to face. And so this is the hope for the believer, to be able to say something like this to to ourselves. I have been created and redeemed to be enthralled by the imperishable bliss of seeing God's stunningly beautiful and glorious face. Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So just a couple points of application. The first one is this, and maybe this should be obvious, but let's realize that that nothing in this world can satisfy our thirst like seeing God face to face. We can collect a bunch of toys. We We can stack up awards and degrees. We can have... Everyone in this world know our name and recognize our face. And it is nothing, my friends, in comparison to the beauty and satisfaction of seeing God face to face. At Mercy Hill, one of the songs that we sing often has this line in it where it says, All the treasures of this world can never satisfy. You alone are endless joy. And so I cling to Christ. My friends, do you believe that you have been created to experience endless joy. Even experiencing the beauty of God's creation, 
is only supposed to point us to that greater fountain of joy, which is found in beholding God himself. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, put it like this. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, the stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink from the fountain of joy. You see what he's saying here? He's saying if even the beauty in this world is so intoxicating, if it's so stunning, if it evokes this response of all within us, these are just the streams and the tributaries. What would it be like to actually experience the fountainhead, to be able to see God face to face? So let's, let's realize that, that nothing in this world can satisfy us, can quench our thirst like seeing God face to face. The beauty of this world and the, and the glory of it is meant to be but a pointer. So the second point of application, my friends, is this. Let's aim the desires of our hearts at God. Christians don't believe desire is wrong. Jesus did not teach that. But what happens is we misplace our desires and we put them on things of this world that we think will satisfy us and they don't. So don't quench desire, heighten it, but aim it towards this proper source. There's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 27, in which the author says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He said, there's one thing that I've asked of God. What, what my heart desires is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. My friends, that's, a, that's an entirely appropriate desire. And it's one that God says he will fulfill in the gospel of Christ. Now, I want us to, to think just a moment about what it might be like to, to experience that. I, I think a lot of times when we tend to think of the life to come, we aim far too low. And I, I don't want to mention something. I, I don't want to at all diminish what a reunion would be with loved ones. But I want to highlight it for just a moment. Several years ago, uh, George Bush passed away. And many of us watched the, uh, the funeral and the service online. We have his library here. And there were cartoons that were, that were drawn to, to depict what a union, reunion might have been like. And so Barbara, who preceded George in death, and is portrayed here as coming out of the gates of heaven, saying, George. And he's responding, coming out of his wheelchair, saying, Barbara. And there's something very beautiful about that, isn't it? It, it gets me right there in the fields, doesn't it? There's one other cartoon that I saw that uh, has a picture of Barbara with their child who preceded them in death, greeting George as he arrives with the words, we waited for you. And one of the great joys of heaven will be able to, to see those who've preceded us in death, who've died in the Lord, and that's going to be glorious and amazing and a wonderful reunion. But my friends, at best, that is penultimate. That is not ultimate the psalmist said in Psalm 16, in your presence, speaking to God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. In God's presence there is this fullness of joy. And no doubt part of that joy is the rejoicing at seeing loved ones who've gone before us. But as I said, that's penultimate. That's not ultimate. The ultimate joy. 
the fountainhead of all joy. The source of the beauty and love is God himself. As the psalmist says in Psalm 23, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. What's ultimate is to be able to see God face to face. That, my friends, is what makes heaven heaven. That's what will make the new creation glorious and spellbounding and thrilling and enthralling. I love what Randy Alcorn said in his book, We Shall See God. To look into God's eyes will be to see what we've always, always longed for, the one who made us for his own good pleasure. You see, my friends, that beatific vision, that day of looking upon God's face, isn't something like we might go to a museum and just look at a piece of art and go, that's interesting, and in a sense be disconnected and disinterested. It's to be enthralled by the fact that the Creator has become our Redeemer and that He wants people like you and me in His presence. That's what Jesus died and rose again to give to us. And so to look into the eyes of the Creator of all and see beaming from them love and affection and desire for you, that's almost beyond comprehension. The poet John Donne said, No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. So in the meantime, as we anchor our hope in seeing God face to face, in the meantime, what can we do to heighten that? Well, in the words of Matt Papa, make your life one unflinching gaze upon the glory of Christ. He would go on to say, if you want to see some of God's glory, you can look at a sunset. But if you really want to see it, look at Jesus. Sunsets, mountains, seeing the stars at night, all those are glorious. And all of those are, are reflections of God's glory meant to animate us and awaken us. But if you really want to see glory, we look to Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the, the universe by the word of his power. Or as the Apostle Paul would say, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So my friends, until that day comes when we can see him face to face, let's continue looking to Jesus, the one who loved us, who gave himself for us, who died so that we might have the purity of heart one day to gaze upon God, to be enraptured by that sight, to get back to the place where all the beauty comes from. So Mercy Hill, may you desire above all this one thing that Jesus died and rose again to secure for you, namely the privilege, honor, and imperishable bliss of seeing God face to face.